today was a fun day for me. I got to share my life verse on Moody Radio. I'll share it with you now. It's Leviticus 13.40. If a man loses the hair of his head, he is bald. <laughs> but he is clean. And so a lot of people don't know that that's my life verse. People look for Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 or something like that. But I figure that's more appropriate to me, don't you think? So. Uh, Evil keeps showing its ugly face. I hope you uh, are aware of the news all the time. Just in the last uh, couple of years, December 14th, 2012, 20-year-old Adam Lanza went to an elementary school in Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut, and there he shot dead 20 children and six adult staff members. And... We look at that and we, we say, God, how could you let this evil go? How could you let this happen? Innocent children. I mean, we've seen all these kinds of shootings at schools and we wonder, where are you, God? And it's not just that kind of evil. In the past year, November 2013, a typhoon ripped through the Philippines. And we remember, most of us, watching TV and seeing the pictures of the devastation of the families that were torn apart and the pain. And over 6,000 people, 6,200 at least, people who perished in that terrible typhoon. And our hearts break and we say, God, why don't you do something about this? If God is good and he exists... He's, and he's good, and he's all-powerful. Why doesn't he intervene? Why does God allow such things? Now, I tried to address that last week. And in fact, uh, last week I mentioned several proposals to look at the problem of evil. Uh, we talked about bad things happen because God doesn't exist. That doesn't really cut it. Uh, we talked about maybe bad things happen or bad things don't really happen. It's all an illusion. We talked about bad things happen because God is not good. Uh, and bad things happen perhaps because God is not all powerful. And all those explanations are inadequate. What we concluded was that God exists. He is good. He is all powerful. And evil exists. And how do we deal with that? Now, uh, there's another option for explaining evil that I didn't mention last week. And that's the one I want to raise today because it's a very common religious explanation. And that is that bad things happen because some people are worse than others. You ever look at someone and their life is going wrong and bad things are happening to them and we think, wow, they must have done something really bad to have that happen to them. That's what Job's friend said. Job, we know you're suffering, but you must have done something to deserve this. Bad things happen, we sometimes feel, because that person deserves it. Um, that was the religious perspective in the first century. In uh, the world of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the Pharisaic or religious perspective of that day said everything was just. So if someone was suffering, if someone had evil happen to them, it was because they deserved it. And so we see that perspective come to light in a discussion that happened with the Lord Jesus about evil. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I've studied the parables of Jesus quite a bit, and we're going to look at a parable that he told tonight. And 
Here's the thing I've discovered. He never gives the expected answer. He is so not what we'd expect. He's totally unpredictable. Are we surprised about that? No. He always gives an unpredictable answer. Now, when we study parables, here's what we have to do. We have to study the context in which they come, and then uh, what, the, what raised the question, and then what the, the story is that Jesus told in answer to that question. What's the principle, and how can we live by it? And so that's what we're going to try and do as we go through Luke 13, 1 through 9. We're going to take an upside-down look, because that's how Jesus looks at it, at the problem of evil. And I'd like to read you at least uh, the first part of this, Luke 13, uh, 1 through 5. So if you have your Bible, if not, you can follow along. Uh, at that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifice, their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will perish as well. So we have the setting here. And when we look at the setting, we see that there are reports of Pilate's evil. That's where we're going to start. So the setting is the reports of Pilate's evil. And uh, first we see that there was a disaster. And the disaster was that, uh, that Pilate had mixed the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. Now, why would he do this? Why would he mix the blood of Galileans? Well, no one's really clear. It appears that probably it was Passover, because that was one of the few times that people could actually offer their own sacrifices. So it was probably around Passover season, and uh, there's no historical record, really, of this happening. But uh, it does fit with the historical record of Pilate's life. He was extremely wicked. He had no compunctions or res uh, reservations about murdering people if he wanted to. And so what he did was, uh, he, this is totally in conformity with what we know about Pilate as a person, apparently he swooped in and had his soldiers murder people at the very same time that, uh, that, that they were offering their sacrifices. Now, can you imagine if you lived in Jerusalem at this time, how disastrous that would be, how awful it would be? And so the people come, and they ask Jesus about this. And they, they say, did you hear about this? They're expecting this teacher to give them an answer. And what's Jesus' response? Well, the response he gives them is that they need to repent. Now, that's not what I'd expect from the shepherd, the good shepherd, you know? We'd say, come on, don't you have a little compassion? It's not what we'd expect that he would actually say to them that they need to repent. It, this seems insensitive, doesn't it? That his response would be that they need to repent. In fact, he goes on to say, do you think that they were worse sinners because of this? Do you think that they were worse than everybody else? No, I don't think so. They were not worse, and in fact, he goes on to say that all people face disaster. Everyone in this life, or even worse, in the next. 
Everyone is facing disaster. If not now, then in the future. And that could even be worse. So imagine that. And then he goes on and tells another story. He responds by telling them about another event. The event is the fall of the Tower of Siloam. The Tower of Siloam uh, fell on people, and that is an example of some natural evil. The, dis- the natural evil, the disaster before uh, of the Tower of Siloam, is a, apparently a tower had collapsed, and uh, it killed eighteen people. It was a, a tower that fell over. Now we don't know, actually. Uh, about that tower. There's no record in Josephus or in the New Testament other than this about this tower falling over. But I do believe it's very common. Siloam is a pool. Uh, It's actually a neighborhood in Jerusalem that's still there. And uh, the pool of Siloam has been uncovered, and there apparently was a tower. And maybe there was an earthquake, lots of earthquakes in Israel, because it's on a, a major fault. Uh, the Syro-African Rift. And so there's always a lot of earthquakes. Apparently this tower wasn't built well. Earthquake came, fell down, killed 18 people. Jesus says about them, his response to this disaster is, you know what? You need to repent. There he goes again, sounding insensitive, don't you think? You would expect, oh, I'm so sorry to hear it. He said, you hear about that? You know what? Do you think they were worse than everybody else? Were they worse sinners? No. All people, he says, face disaster, either in this life or the next. And therefore he tells them to repent. Because if you do not repent now, he says, the future could even be worse. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is directly responding to the the religious perspective that these people were somehow worse and that's why it happened to them. We ask, why do these bad things happen to people? Jesus' response is totally different. What he is saying is we should be amazed that bad things don't happen to everyone. That's his response. We ought to be asking, why don't these bad things happen to everyone? Not why does it happen to this few. It's not because they were worse. He says we all deserve this. We all deserve judgment. Think about it this way. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of, how many of you drive on I-88, right? Oh, pretty many of us. How many of us always drive 55 miles an hour on I-88? So far, no one. Okay. Now, the thing is, I know that there's a sign there that says 55 miles per hour. That's the maximum. But we all know that that means 60 or 65, Right? And we're driving along there, and uh, we may be doing a little bit more than 65, maybe 70 or 75. And as we're driving, we see a state trooper and a car pulled over. And we think, boy, that guy must have been going really fast. But who should be pulled over? All of us. We immediately assume that he was even worse than us. He must have been doing 90. But Jesus says, no. In effect, We're all driving down I-88, and we all deserve to be pulled over. And the question is, why don't we get pulled over? Why did we escape that? When bad things happen to some people, we have to ask, why didn't bad things happen to all people? Why didn't bad things happen to us? And then Jesus tells a story. 
a parable. He gives an illustration to make his point, to answer the question, why don't bad things happen to everyone instantaneously? So we pick it up in verse 6. And he told this parable. He told this story. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will bear fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. The story is of the unfruitful fig tree. And it's told to illustrate God's attitude toward those who break God's laws, who ignore the speed limits of life. That's what he's telling. And, and what would we expect is that we'd get chopped down. Let's t- look at the story. It starts with a planting. There is a fig tree in a vineyard. A fig tree in a vineyard. Now, a vineyard is just a way of saying in a garden. There'd be, there'd be, otherwise, it would be uh, not a vineyard, but a fig garden. But a vineyard would have vines, it would also have trees, different kinds of trees, and it also had a fig tree in it. Uh, now, after maturation, if you plant a fig tree, it takes three years and it should have fruit. Three years. Which is why in the story, when the man comes after three years, what does he expect? He expects fruit. But there is no fruit. And so the problem is, that there is no fruit. What would that indicate? That most likely that this is a barren fig tree. Why even take up the soil with it? Because it's not going to ever produce fruit. And so the, the man just says, just cut it down. This is only worth destruction. Well, then the gardener speaks up. And like most gardeners, they love trees. And so he calls for a delay. He says, let's delay this. Uh, Give me one more year. Just give me one more year to fix this. He says, I'll dig around and uh, I'll I'll fertilize it and I'll, I'll just make it better. And maybe in his fourth year, this fig tree will produce fruit. Now, I can just imagine in a year, what will that gardener say again if there's no fruit? I need another year because he has great mercy and patience with that fig tree. So what's the point of this story? What is Jesus saying about this? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, what the point is not. A lot of people say that this fig tree represents Israel, the Jewish people. And they say that, see, the Jewish people have no fruit, and so God wants to destroy them. That is not what this passage means. The reason people say that is in the book of Micah and the book of Isaiah, the fig tree has been used as an illustration of Israel. And so they say it always means Israel. But it doesn't in this context. The fig tree represents humanity, all of us. So this is what it does mean. Uh, It is a reminder of God's mercy. That's what this is. It is a reminder of God's patience and his mercy. Here's what I mean. 
This is the point of what he's trying to make. When tragedy strikes, we should not think that the sufferers are worse than us, but rather it should remind us of God's patience and mercy towards us and should make us turn to him. Here's the point of this, that that when tragedies strike, we automatically think, just like most religious people, oh, wow, those people must have been really bad. They were speeding even more than I was speeding. But rather, what it should remind us of is, hey, we didn't get pulled over. God's been really merciful to us. Here's the explanation, if we're going to think about what this is about. First of all, in this, when we look at this, we need to be reminded that we are all sinners. Now, I've got to tell you, the word sin is not a popular term. We all commit sin. That's, that's the truth. Who doesn't? I, I like to tell people, people say, have said to me, oh, I don't commit sin. Oh, really? Do you ever do anything wrong? Well, yeah. That's it. <laughs> that's a sin, to miss the mark, uh, to not live up to God's standards. We all sin. How many have ever read Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express? I know I'm not supposed to tell you what the, uh, the, the, the outcome of a mystery novel is, but I'll tell you what it was. Everyone looks guilty. And you know, in a mystery novel, you think, well, he looks guilty, he looks guilty. Who's really guilty? And at the end of the novel, what do we find out? Everyone was guilty. When we look at the suffering in this world, you know what it should remind us? We are all guilty. We all deserve it. And because of that, secondly, we all deserve judgment. You know, when things go, when we do things that are wrong, or we hear someone say something that's wrong, what do we do? We step backwards. Why? Because we're waiting for that lightning bolt to come out and zap someone instantly. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, we all deserve judgment, all of us, because We are all breaking God's laws. We're all resisting him. Judgment should fall instantaneously. That's why we don't want to to be in the direction of someone who says something really blasphemous or really nasty or really mean. Oh, wow, God's going to get him. He's going to say, cut that tree down. And then, here's the thing that we know. We all consistently experience God's patience and mercy. It happens to us every day. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says this. Through, though the, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What this verse is saying were, is that if God were to treat us as we deserve, what would happen to us? We'd be zapped. We'd be smoke. A little pile of ashes there. Every day we rebel against him, and every day bad things don't happen to us. When we scream out to God and say, I only want justice, as Job did, God would say, do you really want justice? Or do you want my mercy and patience? I experienced this myself uh, when I was a boy. I was a young teenager, and a friend and I went to the local uh, store on the corner, a little place where there are magazines, and you can get sodas and things like that. And uh, we looked, I was looking at uh, comic books. And as we're going out, the owner of the store said to my friend who was with me, you took something. And I got very indignant. 
And I said, he did not. We've been coming in the store all the time. We never steal anything. I really made the guy feel guilty. Then we got out, and my friend had stolen something. And it was kind of a smutty book. And he was kind of, he said, look at this book. It has these pictures. You know, I was 13. Or, yeah, okay, I'll look. And then he said, take it. I can't bring it to my house because my mom will kill me. I said, well, my mom will kill me too. He says, but you have a bigger house. You can hide it. So I put it in my jacket. I ran up to my room. I thought, where am I going to hide this thing? So what I did is I hid it between the mattress and the box spring of my bed. And then the next day, I come home. And what do I find? I find my mom was not just changing the sheets, but she was flipping the mattresses. I thought, oh, no, I am going to get zapped. I am going to be grounded forever. My mom, whether this is good parenting or not, didn't say anything to me. So I talked to my friend that day, and he says, where's the book? I said, my mom took it out from between the bed and the mattress. He says, oh, I'll go steal another. I said, don't do that. But he did. And then he gave it to me to hide in my house. This is absolutely true. I thought, what am I going to do with this book? Well, we had these radiator covers, and there was like a little door at the bottom. And I thought, and that's where you could bleed the pipes or, or turn the water. And, and I thought, well, I'll stick it in there. There are so many dust bunnies. No one has gone in this thing forever. The next day, I come home from school, and a plumber is at our house. <laughs> and he's got all the radiator covers off. And he's bleeding our pipes. And I said, did the plumber take off? She says, no, I got ready for him to come here. I took all the radiator covers off. I said, oh, I am going to be killed. I'm going to die. You know, I think as a parent, I probably would have talked to my son about that. But my mom didn't quite know what to do, but she didn't want to come down like a brick and hurt me. And so she didn't say anything. And I did experience her patience and mercy. And that's what I think is happening in this story. They come to Jesus and they say, why is God allowing all these bad things to happen to people? Jesus, you're asking the wrong question. Why don't bad things happen to everyone? Everyone rebels against God. If God were to act, we'd all be consumed. He shows us patience and mercy. Well, what are we going to do with this? How do we respond to this great act of God where he doesn't zap us instantly when we do wrong? Let me suggest several responses. Here's the first one. We should thank God for mercy and patience. We should thank him for all the mercy and patience he has shown us. Every time bad things happen, it's a reminder that it doesn't happen to everyone. And it should happen to everyone. And we have to be thankful to God that it hasn't happened to us because we're not saying that we're better than them we all deserve this now here's something i've learned uh as a professor uh students often complain to me about bad grades now i never lower students grades for lower than what they deserve and they will come to me and they will complain about their grades, and I'll have to sit down and show them that they got just what they earned. 
but they do complain about bad grades. Now, here's another thing I do as a professor, is I try to bump students up. I look at them. I thought, well, this student came in knowing nothing. He didn't learn as much as maybe he could have, but he learned more than you could have thought. Maybe I'll bump him up a half grade or a whole grade. Or this student is so close to a better grade, I think I'll just bump her up to the next level. I never grade down, but I frequently bump up. And what I've discovered is students will complain about the bad grades they get, but they will never come to me and say, you know, I really deserved a lower grade. And, uh, you know, could you lower my grade? They never do that. But what they do do is they say, wow, I did better than I thought. They never say that, uh, that, you know, I really didn't deserve this good grade. And what we are doing when we see people suffering, and we think, oh, thou, they must have been really bad. You know what the truth is? God has been patient with us. He's been merciful with us. And so uh, we have to thank him for that. Every time we experience grace and mercy, we have to thank God. And that's every day. And then secondly, I think we have to show compassion towards those who have suffered. That's absolutely essential. We have to show compassion towards those who have suffered. I mentioned this last week. But again, when people suffer, what we need to remember based on the story is that should be me. That should be you. When people are having bad diagnoses in their lives and they have illnesses and they have trouble and car accidents and financial disasters and really terrible things happening, we're thinking, you know what? That should be me. And if it should be me, what do we have to do? We have to empathize with them. We have to show compassion. I mentioned Elie Wiesel, uh, who wrote Night last week. But one of the more interesting things about that book, Night, is the foreword written by a French Christian, Francois Mauriac. And at the end of his foreword, he said, what did I say to this Jewish man who told me this terrible story of what happened to him and his family? He says, I should have given him, and he lists all the explanations of the problem of evil. That's what I should have said. He says, but all I did was hold him and weep. We weep with those who are suffering. And then, thirdly, what we have to do is we have to use God's patience to turn our hearts and our minds to him. We have to use his patience to turn to the Lord. The reason he shows us mercy and patience and doesn't zap us right away is to give us time to turn to him. Because you see, if earthly suffering is bad, imagine eternity separated from him. And so he says, I'm going to show you some patience. I'm not going to act so that we can take that opportunity to turn to him. Jesus says that we should repent. That means change your mind in Greek. The Jewish concept of repent is to turn around. That's literally it. Now, I experienced repentance in a really graphic way when I went to Colorado with my family, and we were trying to get across. The roads were all out. We were having to get back to our dogs who needed to be let out, and they said we had to go back around about six hours because all the roads were out. But they said you could take this pass, the Ofer Pass. I said, I'll take the Ofer Pass. I have a four-wheel drive vehicle. It was a minivan <laughs> with all-wheel drive. So we start going. We're going. It's pretty good. The road's getting narrower. It's getting bumpier. We're going through little rivers. It's getting steeper and steeper. Pretty soon, my younger son says, you know, I think I just want to walk. 
I don't want to be in the car. We, we look out over the side. We're about 5,000 feet up now. We see cars that are down in the valley that have crashed in there. I'm like, oh, no. If we keep going, we're going to face disaster. And so what I decided to do was turn around. Just turn around. And uh, otherwise I was going to destroy myself and my family. You've heard of like a three-point turn or a five-point turn. I did about a 26-point turn (laughs) to get out of there. But I turned around and I got out. That's what Jesus says. God has given us his patience and his mercy so we have time to turn around and uh, live for him. Well, is suffering related to individual sin? No, they weren't worse sinners. No one who suffers are worse sinners. Is suffering related to sin? Yes. Suffering occurs because we live in a sinful world. But does suffering teach us something about God? Lots of things. But one in particular. It teaches us his mercy and patience. He doesn't zap us the instant we deserve it. His mercy keeps us from being consumed so we have time to turn to him. Remember the traffic story I told you about when you see the car pulled over? And we go, wow, he must have been going really fast. But what do we do when we see the car pulled over? Or or even more, if we get pulled over and we just get a warning, or we think we're going to get pulled over and we don't, what happens? We slow down. We repent. We turn our lives back We do what we're supposed to do. When God shows us mercy and patience, he's giving us time to turn our hearts and our minds over to him, to put our trust in the Lord Jesus, to believe he died for us and rose again, and to live for him. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for being so merciful, so gracious, that so often we think that Those people who are suffering are worse than us. But in reality, we all deserve suffering. And yet you mercifully hold back so much so that we have time to turn our lives over to you. God, we thank you for this. And make us motivated to turn our hearts and our minds over to you, to live for you, to follow Jesus wherever he leads. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.